Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. So welcome to another edition of In Between, and we have a guest today. Yeah, the Reverend Karen Richards Kwan, a colleague of mine on the staff at St. Paul's and very valuable person for our church. So I would sing all her praises, but she might get a big hit. But <laughs> Karen, you know, all of us have been, and I'm not whining, I'm not whining, I want to be clear. All of us have done double duty during COVID, but Karen has really had the burden put on her about organizing all of the worship, all of the recordings, making sure that we have services to stream on Sunday, making sure that we have communion during the week, compline on uh, during the week, um, making sure that now that we started doing in-person services outside, that all of that is lined up. And uh, it's just been an invaluable service. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I try to thank Karen a lot because it's really hard work and it shows. Bill really is very good at offering the thanks. So I appreciate that. And then yeah. telling you a joke right after he's offered the thanks or making yeah. some sort of witty remark right after. Sort of negates everything. <laughs> yes, right. One of those like so, compliments that uh, is also not a compliment. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Let me put on the table a fear that I have. Mm -hmm. I think that um, you, you're creating like this role. You're indispensable. And my fear is that somebody else is going to snap you up and you're going to move somewhere else and we can't fill the void. That is actually so, like my worst nightmare as well. <laughs> so yeah. we share that. I mean, worst nightmare is a strong way to describe it, but that is also a fear that I have because um, we're itinerant. So like the bishop or the DS can call me in the middle of this conversation um, and then we would pause and I would answer and they can say, hey, pack it up. We're taking you somewhere else. And that happens all the time. But you get I, preferential um, sort of location with Paul. Is that always considered together or is that not always considered together? There is. I don't even want to call that into being. So we're just talking about <laughs> someone named Karen and Paul because I don't know who. Is. <laughs> but yes, I uh, to be itinerant is to mean that I can't be indispensable. I have to be unnecessary. So I'm trying to figure out how to work myself out of a job. But it the pandemic has not helped. <laughs> I can yeah. say that. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Bill has said over the last year now, you know, we thought it was two weeks and then six weeks and then three months and then six months. And here we are a year later. Um, and I'll come back to that in a second. But um, we didn't think we'd be here. And Bill, Bill has said over and over again that y'all have worked harder mm -hmm. in this time uh, yep. than you would on a regular, a normal sort of calendar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what I was going to come back to, um, and we can kind of launch into this through this vehicle, you know, in America alone, we've lost 500,000 souls yeah. and over 500,000 souls. I think we forget that people are still dying because we're so talking about the vaccine that we forget that it's still a really big deal. 
Mm-hmm. I think a, they figure something like 1800 a day. Yeah, it's still it's, too high. It's horrible. And, it's horrible. And, and one of the things, you know, I think we haven't had a process for grief, mm-hmm. both for losing things like community, um, having our sort of circles within our community, mm-hmm. and also just for how many people have died. One of the first conversations we had in ordinary life during this time was with Cleve Tinsley. Yeah. Yeah. And Natalie um, about how COVID was impacting um, communities that they live and work in. Um, Mm -hmm. And what, you know, what do you see through St. Paul's? I mean, we have to be really mindful that it has disproportionately affected black and brown bodies. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I appreciate about St. Paul's is the increasing nature to follow the lead of the folks who are either being affected or who are really on the ground um, and know more about the community than say myself or you know any other just casual St. Paul's member. Um, and that has been really impressive to me because it's really easy for us as a wonderful, wise, financially, um, heavy institution to say, this is what we think you need. And so we're just going to do it. And it really is doing it to folks. Um, So understanding that the pandemic has really impacted um, black and brown communities the most, we have listened to those communities and tried to follow their lead and to come alongside their passions um, so that we are just, we're just helping. Yeah, that's so important. To, uh, to let whoever is being uh, impacted take the lead and mm-hmm. voice the concerns. And I think that's so common, both in the way that our country does nation building, and I'm using that in quotes, as we come in with these ideas about what we think people need, and instead yeah. of listening to like, if you could have anything you need, yeah. what would it be? And what can and we do to help you get that? <laughs> it's a hard line, mm-hmm. and we've probably crossed it a lot of times, because... It um, on the other side of that is just saying, well, since you're impacted by this, why don't you just tell us how to fix it and we'll do it. And that doesn't involve us doing the very difficult work um, that we need to do to be able to engage those systems appropriately. Can you say more about that? Like what the systems of inequity that already exists and kind of how Mm -hmm. you think we could or should engage with it. Oh, there's so many. <laughs> where do we start? <laughs> I can figure out where we start. Yeah. I mean, for for this, yeah. uh, let's start at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, HISD switches to online schooling, yep. as you know. And you know. <laughs> several weeks in, there were still an enormous number of families who could not connect at all. They hadn't found the families. Like, <laughs> They hadn't even, HIC had not been able to make contact with them, let alone see if their children were able to access virtual learning. Um, So that's, I mean, that's one thing that we don't really think about as much when we have like so rapidly switched to the virtual model is how inaccessible it is to folks who are either not connected or this is not their skill set. Um, this is not the, the world that they prefer to operate in. And so they don't have um, the resources or the 
the wisdom, we'll say, the yeah. technological wisdom, to be able to access community, to be able to access healthcare, um, and everything else this way. And so much has become virtual. And so every <laughs> every inequity that already existed has been magnified in a lot of ways, but also by this virtual shift. Yeah. Absolutely. There's, I'll give two examples of that. Um, a guy I know who's a landscaper, he has um, four children, I think two are school aged, mm -hmm. and they were doing school on a single device, a phone, yeah. on Wi-Fi. I'm sorry, on cellular, not on Wi-Fi. And, and that was last year. And I, I, th I think um, he was you know, trying to get a computer so that the kids could share that. But then HIC had these buses that were parking in certain parking lots that were sort of Wi-Fi hotspots. But then you have to have someone go sit there with you. And, you know, it's, it, it really was impossible. And I think at the beginning of this year, when we reported for school virtually, um, I think there were something like 60 to 70,000 kids who never enrolled. Yeah. And that's just madness. Yeah. 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 It's really... I think when it, that my husband sent me um, an article from, I want to say it was like the New Yorker hour on NPR maybe. And it was an interview with a woman who's been writing about how uh, COVID has disproportionately impacted uh, specifically young black men, like young, not necessarily pre-existing condition black men who are kind of the John Henry's of their communities who um, one guy was a barber who then started an, another barbershop, who then started a barber school, who was kind of training all these young black men in being a barber and he died because he never stopped doing what he was doing. And, and so this whole community sort of experiences this domino or trickle effect of loss. And, you know, I just found that to be so sad. Yeah. But yeah, Bill, I've been talking a lot. Do you wanna say something? <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm just thinking that uh, a lot of people may think because St. Paul sits in this prosperous, well-to-do kind of position. And fortunately, we do have a number of very generous people who are members of the congregation. But we also have a community of people where their jobs have been affected by COVID. They've been in the service industry or some of our musicians who have worked playing gigs outside in clubs or whatever, they've lost their jobs, they lost their income. So COVID has really made quite an impact on the St. Paul's community. And it, it's uh, an effort to try to speak to that and to to know how to how to even to meet the needs sometimes it can be so overwhelming yeah. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. both the, the financial and the physical needs <clears throat> but also like the massive emotional and spiritual needs out yeah. of something like this yeah yeah so I, I have a question for you karen uh this is something that i harp on and you probably could have seen this coming <laughs> I think that it's really important for people to have a daily spiritual practice. Yeah. And I know that you work really, really hard all the time. What do you do to take care of yourself? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> In this season, Sabbath has looked very weird. Um, and I'm big on not judging other people for what they consider Sabbath to be. Yeah. So. 
sad that there's not one size fits all. Um, but I really love being out in nature. Holly, you were talking about this just a little bit ago. To be amongst trees yeah. and trails that aren't concrete um, is one of the most life-giving things that I know how to do. So every Friday, most Fridays, <laughs> we'll trek up to the state park that's like an hour and a half away north of us. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll go for a few hours of a hike. And we just drive for three hours every Friday <laughs> to make that happen. Um, so that we can be on non-paved trails where you can only hear the freeway a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can never get far <laughs> enough away from it. But yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I love the city. I've I've always been a city person. This is how I grew up. I urban ministry has been my life. Um, so it's not a negative space for me. But mm -hmm. to be able to remove myself and to just be with my family and to process the past week together is invaluable for my spirit. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Yeah, I find that to be a real respite too. And I'm so pleased that my kids still really love playing outside that they haven't become complete digital heads yeah. yet, you know, but um, it's, it, I mean, that's a hard balance this year is just getting off our computers and yeah. getting, you know, that need for something real and tangible and earthy under our feet has become mm -hmm. even larger because of how much time we've spent in the digital space. Yeah, and that's um, the digital overload piece is also one of the priorities that I try to work against in order to take care of myself. So not that I'm like, I'm clearly not stopping digital work, um, but I try to prioritize being able to see people like face to face for something non-productive. Um, so meetings don't count, um, something unrelated to work life, just to be with other people and to be able to be in community with them, even if it's wildly uncomfortable because it's super hot outside and we're all masked and far away and we can't hear each other. Um, that's still much better for me than to not do that in a week. So that's been my other practice to just yeah. be with people. That's good. That's good that you've been able to maintain that. I feel like that's sort of what I'm really, really missing is just my, my people, um, yeah. hugging other people. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Holding yeah. Other babies. Yes. Yeah. Just kind of that longing for some sort of connection, but yeah. Well, I, I know that you primarily take responsibility for organizing the other clergy around the task of liturgy. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, but kind of give us an insight to what else you do at St. Paul's. I know some of it, but people listening would not. Yeah. So one of my roles is obviously the liturgy area and I just sort of manage our worship life and I get to do it with Chris Betts, who's our director of music. He and I work together um, to just figure out all the things and figure out how St. Paul's can worship as faithfully as possible um, in a way that feeds um, everyone spiritually. Um, and uh, that's one side of things. And then the other like primary bucket I hold is um, over the faith formation department. So all of our age and stage ministries um, are all in this one bucket of faith formation. And the entire like sort of overarching area is one that I steward, but then I do sort of the hands-on programmatic work of adult faith formation. Mm -hmm. um, so things like the pastor's Bible study, which Bill graciously agreed to do this semester, even though it was Ecclesiastes. 
Um, and uh, things like that are. I think he's day. quite enjoyed it. He's mentioned yeah. it every week. So um, I get to teach this Wednesday. So I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have loved yeah. doing it. I, I would not have done the deep dive into Ecclesiastes without this, yeah. but it's been a lot of fun to do. Yeah. It's been very uh, energizing and certainly educational. I've not sat down and read the book of Ecclesiastes probably since seminary. Yeah. You know, just in one to sit down and read the whole book yeah. and then pick up a commentary and start going through it. It's been really energizing right. and good energy between the four people on the faculty yes to that's my favorite. do that too. that's exciting that's great i heard i heard paul say that you were reluctant to put paul and me together <laughs> oh gosh <laughs> because and we did kind of go off track like night. <laughs> all right wednesday night before last we did kind of go off but it got a lot of good feedback people liked what we did Oh, Paul and Bill are um, people, both people who I love and adore and respect. And I think that both of you are smarter than I am. And I don't accept rebuttals there. But um, <clears throat> they are also real. They're, they cover a large theological spectrum. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we'll say that. So I thought, well, I don't know how this will go. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go from A to Z in the span of an hour, kind of. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Holly. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you know, t speaking of adult faith formation, I, mean, I think that's part of what ordinary life is. And um, that's how I have stayed most connected to St. Paul's is through my participation in ordinary life for 23 years now. Um, so that's a long time. But, um, but I was a member of St. Paul's since I was 14. And just in thinking about adult faith formation, one of the things Bill, that I really love about Bill and that we've been talking a lot about this year is staying relevant to the sort of social, political and health things that are related to how do we view the world spiritually? How do we act in the world spiritually or socially? And I'd love to hear you talk about that. Where do you think faith formation and justice kind of um, intersect or collide? I think that it is a huge intersection. One of the things that we say, we, royal we, um, about faith formation is that we desire for um, this church that sits on the intersection of Vins and Maine to also um, inhabit and grow and learn from the intersectionality of the community that we're positioned in. So for me, faith formation is something that in my study and church life and professional life, um, a lot of people think about one kind of faith formation, which is typically um, sort of like white faith formation. And then, and this is seen in biblical studies. So there's, there's white biblical studies. And then if you come from any other lens or hermeneutic is what we call it. Yeah. If you come from any other lens that's labeled, this is like, this happens, you know, throughout our whole society, but, um, if you come from the Asian American lens and I like bring my life and lived experience, then it's Asian American hermeneutics. Um, and so it feels like even just that construct makes it feel like we're going out of our way um, to learn from brilliant people and to, to absorb their life's wisdom. Um, so I think that how we even source our curriculum, I mean, that sounds like a really boring thing, but it's not related to racial justice. And we have seen how that affects children. Oh my gosh, um, yes. <laughs> all the way up. So uh, Pastor Kate, she's the pastor of children's ministry. She and I talk all the time about how 
we can help the curriculum that we're using to be something that is very much so aware of our society and what our role is as Christians um, in that. So curriculum is like one big way that we seek to slowly shift the culture so that to, and really invigorate the culture of St. Paul so that it's just automatic that our faith um, and that our lives are informed by Black, Indigenous, people of color, um, and that we learn and grow alongside. And it doesn't feel like anything out of the ordinary or like it's not branded as a class that does diversity. Um, it's just, it's a class that yeah. we have at St. Paul's. It's not, lo- it's not located in a certain month, but just incorporated <laughs> into the- it's not a February only, yeah. Right, exactly, yeah. So when that we, goes yeah. to so many different things, both the curriculum, the commentaries we pull from, the music and the art that we celebrate, everything there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's amazing to me um, how much I have learned in the last, I'm going to say two years, because probably this started for me when I started reading some novels. Um, and, And I began to realize that, for example, when somebody says that you, meaning some other, need to assimilate into our culture, the rules of assimilation are made by white people. And uh, so we still have to struggle with our understanding of who makes the rules and how do you create a really round, inclusive table where everybody is welcome and Absolutely. For sure, whiteness, if you will, sort of centers its own comfort. And I think just that it, that white folks have gotten to write the narrative in this country that that, you know, that that comfort is continually centered. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that uh, the phrase that you use a lot, Bill, is um, Protestant white male religion, right? And, and one of the things that Protestant white male religion has sort of focused on is individual salvation. Mm. Um, uh, but one of the things that in contrast, right. let's say, um, well, I even think of the church my husband grew up in the southern black baptist church right and um southern baptist black church is and and or liberation theology which centers the experience of community instead of individual salvation um do you are you informed by any kind of the differences between what bill refers to as white male protestant religion and kind of this community um experience of spirituality or religion like how does that sit with you yeah, I, it's it's funny for me to call liberation theology its own section mm-hmm. because that is my entire theology. Yeah. So I don't actually understand how you can study the Bible and um, speak our liturgy and sing our songs without viewing the world through this liberation lens. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how people get there, um, which is something I need to learn about. But I believe that like the redemption of Christ means liberation for all people. Yes. That, yeah. That's what happens. This is the Eastern narrative that we're coming up toward. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we want to follow in the way of Christ, we have to examine the entire body of Christ. Um, and this communal experience is deeply, deeply important. You can't be a Christian in a vacuum. So I can't live a Christian life alone. And I think that's one of the things that has been so hard about the pandemic is even if we're connecting virtually, it, it often feels like we're living this Christian life alone. Yeah. And it's very, very difficult spiritually. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, widen that even to the network. Like we are only uh, somebody in term in relation to other bodies. You know, our somebodiness is yeah. defined by community, and yeah. our humanness is also defined by the natural world and how we intersect with that. You know, um, I love um, David Abrams, right? Something like our, our 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 humanness is only in conviviality with like the sounds of the wolves, the yeah. colors of the trees. You know, just that we respond this participatory responsiveness with and to one another is important in community too. And, and so often we're in these silos as I love that you said, it's so interesting that we even label it liberation theology. That is Jesus's theology. Like, why does it need its own category? So, yeah. 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 Right. So I, you know, I, as I see it, we, we remain in the grips of some really destructive yeah. archetypes, negative shadow archetypes, I call them. And one of them is the archetype of white male mm -hmm. patriarchy or white patriarchy. And, and um, I don't know how we get out of that except to keep talking about it and raise awareness about it and point out, hey, do you notice that all these white guys are making the rules and um, keep trying to be as inclusive mm -hmm. of others as possible and, and working toward that stance mm -hmm. because we're all enriched by that. And um, that's a hard it point really to is. get across and in our culture. The hardest thing for me is that, and this is like, this is race on the whole, this is all sorts of power dynamics on the whole. So often the folks who are so gently perpetuating that power structure are amazing, kind, compassionate, mm -hmm. um, well-meaning people um and so that, that makes it really difficult because you notice like oh they are participating in this patriarchal um system here and they're putting me in my place in it which is not <laughs> at the top of the patriarchy um and that's a really difficult thing to work through with folks yeah and some folks aren't able to do that like so. these well-meaning people still call you sweetie, even though you have a higher <laughs> degree and are a brilliant theologian and all the things that, <laughs> you know, the, those are, I, I don't know if you relate to that as a woman, but for sure um, that, that feels true for me, right? Just yeah. some of the sort of, oh, honey, <laughs> oh, sweetie. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I, I think one of the gifts that the guy that I mentioned Sunday in class, Leslie Weatherhead, though he is now deceased, and people like Richard Rohr and Jim Finley, Ilya Delio, uh, Joan Chittister, I could name a number of other people. What they have been, a, what they have gifted me with is an ability to stay firmly in the tradition and also be able mm -hmm. to criticize the bejabbers out of at the same time, because that we need to we need to be able to do that. I can't stand outside the church and say you're bad and all that. I, yeah. it, I can only do it from within. And um, I love the church. I love St. Paul's. And mm -hmm. we got to make some changes. Mm -hmm. well, I'd love to ask both of y'all to sort of reflect on what if, if you could create, if you could just wave your magic wand and say, what could it look like? Um, 
And that's even from a liturgical standpoint, what, you know, what prayers mm -hmm. would we say? What songs would we sing? What, um, you know, there's some songs that we sing that are like, what, <laughs> you know, but, but there's also some that we sing that are beautiful and incredible. Um, I'd love to hear from y'all what you think that could look like from the church tradition um, and what traditions need to just be gone. Yeah, we do this in the church all the time, but we forget about it, we change. Um, but once that's happened and it's in the rearview mirror, we forget that we can ever change again. Um, it's a very difficult process that the church goes through. But I think that if we were to be able to prioritize um, our care of the identities that are present within the congregation and around the congregation, that would go a long way in helping us to figure out what liturgy we cherish and treasure and say each week and what liturgy we can let go of or adapt, like be pay homage to its um, original writer and the intent there and realize this is a different year and we know different things and we have different experiences. And so as Wesleyans, we can grow in that way and continue to shape our faith in that way. I think that the question that Michael Moore would gave us when he was here about prayer and about liturgy, the language of liturgy, creeds, and all of that was, what are you asking me mm -hmm. to imagine when you ask me to recite mm -hmm. this creed? What are you asking me to imagine when you ask me to pray this prayer or to join you in praying this prayer that you write? And um, I, I'm, it saddens me that uh, so often, <clears throat> For example, when we when we sing certain hymns and when we create certain prayers, that we invoke an image of God mm. who is out there and not one who is with us, not a presence in which we reside and that mm. resides in us. And I, I think that that's the biggest theological challenge that we face, in my opinion, is how to open the door for an enriching, enlivening, energizing spiritual practice and liturgical practice, and at the same time, close the door on an understanding of a God who is removed, disinterested, angry, and, and all of that. That's the task that we have to do, and um, I, I think it's, we do it first of all, in education and faith formation, but also then we move that in, into, into our liturgies and into our, mm -hmm. our practices. So that, I, I think that's a challenge and we, we're just on the front edge of, of being mm -hmm. able to do that. And that's such an important task, particularly, I mean, definitely in faith formation, as well as um, in liturgy, because liturgy is the work of the people. It's like rehearsal for Christian life in the rest of the world. So if the words that we're using there um, are restrictive, or if they communicate a God that is not connected with us, um, a liberation that is not whole, universal, encompassing, um, mm -hmm. that affects the entire way that we live um, outside of the church and inside the church, too. Yeah. For sure. I mean, and, and, and on the other hand, to be very, very pastorally yes. caring for people for whom the liturgy is so Absolutely. meaningful. And, and, and that's 
that's also uh, mm -hmm. a challenge. I'm uh, given the task of um, writing and giving the Good Friday homily this year, and or one of them, and I, I thought of a, a hymn that I grew up with, uh, The mm -hmm. Old Rugged Cross. And I checked to see if it was even in the Methodist hymnal because we never sing it. But it is. It is in the Methodist hymnal. I love hymnal. that Karen just knew that. <laughs> like, yeah. And I used to yeah. love that song when I was a kid growing up in the church. It was one yeah. of my favorites. But now I would I would have difficulty singing. Yeah. I mean, I used to love the song, mm -hmm. Jesus Loves Me. Um, or no, Jesus Loves the Little Children. I loved that song. But now if someone mm -hmm. calls me yellow, I'm kind of mad about it. So. <laughs> right right yes yeah I know we were just talking about that song actually that Bill grew up sort yeah. of singing that song but lived in this vehemently racist society and you know and we still live in this very racist society but your particular experience Bill which you've spoken to what you know had a very strong mm -hmm. divide and you're older which is we love you for um, <laughs> we're so glad to have wise elders in our life but um so you've lived through more than we have you've lived through more history but um you know I, I think so much you know one of the things that I've I hear um probably specifically um and those who identify as white and our leaders say well we could just bring in more um, prayers from this tradition or prayers from that tradition and I think we have to walk this delicate line of like co-opting mm -hmm you know, who, who am I as a white woman to say, well, I'll just bring in this Native American prayer and we'll just call it a day, you know, and be, between co-opting and really yes. embodying, you know, really kind of, you know, living into those words. And what do you think is that, what do you think that balance is between being more inclusive in the language and prayers and words and, and inspiration that we draw from as, and not leaning too far into, um, sort of doing it as uh, yeah, absolutely. performative. I think one of the, or two of the starting points for that, one of them is um, permission asking. So if mm -hmm. I find a prayer mm -hmm. on the internet and it's attributed to someone, and usually they are at this point, there's someone's name there, I can try to contact them and say, hey, I would love to use this prayer in this worship service. Um, can I do this? Can I compensate you? for the effort, the spirit yeah. you have put into this work instead of just taking it for free because you've already done it. Um, so the permission asking is one thing, but also your the word of embodiment is absolutely spot on here. Because if I am trying to help the congregation or help myself to learn from a prayer, I need to learn so much more about what that prayer has meant to the people it was prayed to originally. We talk about this when we're reading the Bible also, and it applies to all written texts, really, all, all communication in general, um, to learn about what the prayer means so that our own meanings aren't just sort of inserted in um, and we, we put aside uh, the original intent there. So uh, this makes me curious and I want to ask you, you grew up in the church. I did. Well, tell, tell, me, tell us about that experience. What was that? I grew up in two different churches. So primarily I went to the nice Methodist church. It wasn't like pearly white, but it was, um, it was mostly white. It's right in the middle of downtown Seattle um, with a really vibrant ministry with homeless folks. Um, a lot of 
food insecurity work, a lot of justice work. So that's my understanding of what church is and sort of has been my understanding of what church is. So there was that church. And then on Saturdays, that was my Sunday church. On Saturdays, I went to the Chinese Baptist church. Um, and I, I mentioned that in my sermon this past weekend, um, but I, I did that for quite a long time. And it was a fascinating experience because I became, I soon realized that theologically, even as an eight or nine-year-old, I did not align there and I did not want mm -hmm. to absorb it. I was really good at Bible drills and I liked getting stickers and accolades, <laughs> but um, the theology that we would learn there just didn't feel right in my gut. And I never was able to critique it or even constructively work with it because I was, I just didn't have the words of the process yet. But um, right. so theologically, I did not fit. But racially, that was, that was my community. I mean, those were the people who like for church potlucks, we had Asian food. <laughs> I mean, right. even though right. like somewhere like St. Paul's and the last church I served, I love these people and they have loved me very deeply. Um, and they don't force me to put myself aside or anything, but I'm still not bold enough to bring an Asian dish to a potluck. So, <laughs> um, so there was such a sense of belonging on one hand and not necessarily in the white church, but then such a theological sense of belonging um, in the Methodist church and not in the Baptist church. So that's, yeah. so, so you know, I, I think you speak yeah. to something that's really important and that is the intuition that we all have within us to know what's right and to pay and to pay attention. I mean, to know what's right for us. I'm not talking about what's you know what yeah. what fits for us yes. and it's very important to pay attention to and i had that i had that same kind of experience i grew up in a southern baptist church that the people in that church loved me took care of me taught me babysat me all of that sort of stuff taught me the bible um and it was an incredibly valuable experience and they were racist and fundamentalist and blah 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 and i knew that I knew from the get-go that there were certain things that were said and done that uh, I don't think that's, uh -uh. but the part of it being a loving, caring community, that fits. Yeah. 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 Well, that's interesting, but I mean, both of y'all are pointing to sort of two different experiences. I've had that experience mm -hmm. in the same church mm -hmm. within St. Paul's, you know, there was a time um, when as a young kid, I was like, oh, I don't, I don't jive with this. And I, and the way I was being taught things was not with very much nuance, or I wasn't able also as a young kid to have very much nuance because we yeah. think more concretely, you know, and, um, and I have told Bill this, I, um, I left the church for a while. Um, I wasn't satisfied with its inclusion of um, LGBTQIA really um, until Jim Bankston came along and made a really firm statement. Um, I don't know how I knew the, how I intuited this as a kid too. I really don't like, I don't know if I agree or disagree with that, but it's funny to me that the same place has also offered the, the place that is most a spiritual home mm -hmm. to me in ordinary life, you know? So I just think 
th that even within the same place. And I've read, a, I, I don't know if you ever listened to yeah. um, Krista Tippett's uh, yeah. podcast on being, well, I love that one of her first questions is what, what was your spiritual experience as a kid and where are you now? And, and I, and so many people that she interviews say, uh, well, I was raised this, I left it for a long time, but you know, I'm kind of coming back to it yeah. in a new way. And I wonder if that just isn't part mm -hmm. of our maturity that we come back to something if we stay, you know, I, I, I'm going to, I'm interrupting myself to say, I love that Cleve Tinsley always says you can critique yeah. something and yeah. love it at the same time. And we, we come back to something in a new way if we sort of stay committed. Um, Bill knows my, one of my favorite Bible images of, is of Jacob wrestling the angel. And I feel like I'm that. I'm sort yes. of a struggler. I'm like a, yes. I just want to keep grappling here. <laughs> I love that yeah. passage. Yeah. We're all walking away with a limp. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we come yeah. back to something too. And we get a new name and we get a new identity within that if we're willing to sort of yeah. um, allow ourselves to grow up. Well, I am beginning to feel like we have taken enough of Karen's time. <laughs> um, because I know she's got a lot on, on her yeah. plate. I, I, I'm really grateful for you, Karen, and for what you do at St. Paul's. It is a life-saving work for the rest of the colleagues on the team with you. Thank you. I really appreciate Absolutely. that. Any last words of wisdom you'd love to drop on us, Karen? <laughs> I don't know that there are, except for one thing that's been rolling around in my mind since we talked about it. <laughs> so maybe you can just edit this oh, in. Sure. Um, when we talked about the different ways that faith formation can address things, we have the subtle ways, but then also we have like anti-racism groups. So it is, um, it's also a very intentional thing as well. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, yep. we need that to be a much more um, known thing. And I, that's probably a lot of that formation has been done in the last year when we've not been gathering in person. So uh, whatever we can do to sort of continue to promote and advertise that, please, please tell us. Um, I have the, I have the, the hope that sometime in the fall, we'll be able to be together. Yeah. It's a while yet, but we'll keep the faith and keep people safe and yeah. Yeah. do that. Karen, thanks so much. It's Thank lovely you. to see you. <laughs> Absolutely, it has been a delight.